Hello, everyone. You're listening to Slapdash, the podcast about history, art, science, and everything else. We're your hosts, Shannon Deaton and Jason Creekmore. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we will discuss two of the most prominent and lucrative companies in American history, Facebook and Disney. Across the table from me tonight, I have Jason Creekmore. Jason, how are you doing tonight, man? I'm doing well. Have you ever looked at Disney's Facebook page? <laughs> I've not. Your, your mind will just blow. <laughs> I haven't either. They just dawned on me when you said that, though. Let's do it with the two companies. <laughs> have you ever seen Facebook's Disney movie? <laughs> no, but I hope to. <laughs> yeah, so we, we have some interesting conversation to have tonight. This is kind of um, a sequel, a spiritual sequel, I guess <laughs> yep. you could call it, to our second episode we ever made a Slapdash, which is still a, holds up pretty well. I listened to it this week. It was the history of Nike and McDonald's. So really looking forward to diving into two other companies here, Facebook and Disney. That's right. So we'll just start right at the top, and we'll begin with the discussion about Facebook first. So just a few facts about Facebook. Uh, Facebook was launched on February 4th, 2004, and it was originally deemed the Facebook. So that was the original naming convention that was given to it by its co-creators, which included Mark Zuckerberg and his Harvard roommates, uh, Eduardo Severin, Andrew McCollum, Dustin Moskovitz, and Chris Hughes. Now, I think uh, Zuckerberg is the one who is most noted in that list there, but he was one of the co-creators along with several of his roommates who were with him at Harvard University. We'll talk more about that here in just a bit. Now, Jason, if you're wondering how many people actually use Facebook, it's a few. <laughs> is it is it more than a thousand? Yeah, it's more than a thousand. Uh, a substantially large <laughs> portion of that uh, are uh, people's aunts. Oh, <laughs> Apparently, <yeah>. and uncles, <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, but uh, Facebook has 2.45 billion monthly users globally. That's 26.3 percent of the world's online population using Facebook. So, wow, it's out there, man. Uh, that, that definitely includes me. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a Facebook account. Uh, we also have a social media account. You know, cheap plug here for Slapdash. <laughs> we'll talk about that more later. Uh, if Facebook users were a country, Jason, it would be the second largest in the world, only slightly smaller than China. So there's there's a lot of people out there. Man, that's incredible. I never really thought about it in terms of yeah. of like that. Sharing pictures, videos, liking cat memes. I mean, yeah, especially right now with the, you know, with the, you know, the screaming woman and the white cat. Oh, you know, man, that's everywhere. Uh, and then also you know, taking pictures of your meals. Yeah. That, that's always uh, you have to a keep mainstay. People up to date. Right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. People, people need to know. Uh, so Facebook adds approximately five. 500,000 new users every day. That's that's half a million people daily. Six new profiles every second. So this podcast has been going uh, just about three minutes now. So you can kind of do the math there and figure out how many people across the world are creating new Facebook profiles. Eventually, are we going to run out? I mean, is everybody going to have a Facebook? Or? <laughs> I, I suppose so. It's got to happen, yeah. right? I think that's the end goal. Uh, Facebook generates over $5 billion per year uh, in net income, and it is the sixth most uh, most valuable brand in the world, estimated at 512 billion dollars in market value. That's right behind companies such as Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, and Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. So there's only five companies ahead of Facebook in terms of their value and uh, you know their overall worth. 
and there are approximately 33,606 employees at Facebook. I imagine that makes an exciting Christmas get-together, you know, a lot of <laughs> fun um, <laughs> trading gifts, and, you know, it's, it's got to be interesting. Yeah, because you imagine watching everyone's pictures. It's the same pictures of the same party. <laughs> Right. All of them be post the same pictures on their own Facebook page. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Facebook is available in most parts of the world, or I, I should say in many parts of the world. It's famously banned in China, uh, but there is a growing underground following in that area. So, man, people are going to find their Facebook, That's right. whether it's allowed <laughs> Underground <not>. Facebook. <laughs> yeah. So they're getting on there, and they're they're making profiles you know, on there. <laughs> they're joining the social network. Uh, one study revealed that 30% of American adults get their news from Facebook. So that's right. a staggering statistic. I can I can believe that. Yeah, yeah I can believe that. There's tons of news in my yeah. news feed all yeah. the time about everything. And it really all begins with Mark Zuckerberg. We talked about there being several co-creators, but Zuckerberg is the CEO and operator primarily of Facebook, especially in its early days. So I want to spend just a bit of time talking about Mark's early life. And, you know, thinking about how did he get into this mindset that he wanted to create this social network? And, Jason, I believe a lot of his influences in life leading up to this moment perfectly crafted his ability to create Facebook. So Mark was born on May 14, 1984 in White Plains, New York. He was the second of four children born to dentist Edward Zuckerberg and his wife, psychiatrist Karen Zuckerberg. Uh, Mark's dad taught him how to program computers when he was 11 years old and hired a software developer to give his son private lessons. So, you know, this is a very early age, you know, starting to show some interest in computers. I think uh, it was noted one of his first operating languages he was programming in was Atari Basic, a very common early days sort of programming language. Um, During his high school years, Mark won prizes for math, astronomy, and physics, showing his talents for math very early on uh, in his academic career. And by the time he graduated, he could read and write French, Hebrew, Latin, and ancient Greek. How about English? I, I, it's, it's not mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he might have picked that up later, you know, or along the way. I'm sure uh, it, it may have came natural to him. I don't know. Uh, but for his senior project, Zuckerberg wrote a music player called the Synapse Media Player, uh, and it used artificial intelligence to learn the user's listening habits and recommend other music. Now, this was early on. This was before the days of Pandora and Spotify and some of these other mainstream streaming services that we have today, which do pretty much exactly the same thing. So that's pretty cool for a high school senior to develop something like this and have the forethought to put it together and to make it work. And, you know, other companies took notice, both Microsoft and America Online, AOL, (laughs) if you remember that, uh, offered to buy Synapse for $1 million and hire Mark as a developer, but he turned them both down to enroll at Harvard in September 2002. So he could have made his first million dollars right there selling his first piece of hardware or sorry, software that he wrote as a senior in high school. That's incredible. I I had not heard that story. Yeah, And he decided not to do it, you know, and that's I can't imagine a high school senior turning down a million dollars and immediate employability at either Microsoft or AOL. 
during that time. So that's that's really interesting to me. I find that fascinating yeah. that he. But you know, he had other things on the horizon. Obviously, he went on to the Ivy League, and you know, um, eventually went on to develop this thing called Facebook. But during the Harvard years, Mark studied both psychology and computer science as a double major. And in his sophomore year, he wrote a program called Course Match. This was one of his earlier programs. And Course Match allowed users to match class selection decisions based on the choices of other students and also to help form study groups. So it would look at the, you know, the patterns of other students who were having those majors and it would sort of link those up algorithmically and it would pretty much help you develop a schedule and it would also show you people who had a similar schedule so that you could form study groups. Again, this sounds to me a lot like some of the things that Facebook does. You know, it connects all of this data from people and it pulls them together. It creates communities. It creates groups. And you can really see how all of the the strands are tying together (laughs) to a common knot here. Uh, Also in his sophomore year, Mark met his soon-to-be wife, Priscilla Chan, uh, who is now a pediatrician and philanthropist in her own right. We're going to talk more about some of the charities and philanthropy that the two of those have engaged in here in just a little bit. But famously, Mark dropped out of Harvard during his sophomore year to pursue the management and creation of Facebook. So apparently... Facebook really took off uh, when Mark developed it when he was just a sophomore in college. And he saw so much potential in it, and it was growing so quickly that he just decided, you know what, Harvard is is kind of going to have to ride second chair <laughs> to this whole idea of Facebook. So where does the name Facebook actually come from? Uh, a Facebook is a type of directory that has been used in universities and colleges in the early days to provide contact information and pictures of students, faculty, and staff. In a way, it's sort of like a yearbook. You know, it has pictures of everybody who's at the college. It has ways to contact them via email, phone, etc. I wasn't aware of that. That's something that I've not really seen in a physical form, a, a literal Facebook as they call it, but apparently it was definitely something that was circulating at Harvard during the time that Mark was enrolled. So the predecessor to Facebook was called FaceMash. It launched in 2003, and Zuckerberg wrote the software for FaceMash when he was, again, in his second year of college at Harvard, and it was a very interesting type of software. It was a website that was set up as a type of, quote, hot or not game for Harvard students. Uh, Visitors were shown pictures of two students side by side and asked to decide which one was more attractive. I've read uh, uh, some articles about this and then also uh, watched this, you know, the movie. You know, It's based on the social network, and yeah. I, rem- I specifically remember that part oh, yeah. uh, in the movie. Yeah, it's been a little while since I've seen the social network. Is that So that's part of it? That's in uh, there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that's a scene in there. Yeah, so when Zuckerberg was writing the software for the program, uh, you know, he was writing and posting a lot to his blog as well. And, you know, in, uh, being a software sophomore in college. Sometimes things just sort of stream out. On his blog, Mark actually wrote the following, quote, I'm a little intoxicated, not going to lie. So what if it's not even 10 p.m. and it's a Tuesday night? What? The Kirkland Dormitory Facebook is open on my desktop, and some of these people have pretty horrendous Facebook pics. I almost want to put some of these faces next to pictures of some farm animals and have people vote on which is more attractive. (laughs) End quote. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he meant that uh, with all due respect, because they yeah, said, "Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure." Yeah, he he was just trying to frame that, you know, very in a very classy way. <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, you know, this has become part of the the Zuckerberg mythos in a right. way. You know, it's out there. There are other blog entries uh, around this time that you can go and look up at, that are equally as interesting. So oh, I'm you know, sure I implore our, our listeners to, <laughs> if they're adventurous, go do a do a quick Google search. But in its first four hours of being online, this software application, this website known as FaceMash, attracted 450 visitors and 22,000 photo views. And you have to keep in mind, this was locked into the Harvard network. network. Yeah. yeah, so it was just circulating there. And the administrators quickly took note of this, you know, as they would at most colleges. Uh, the site was quickly shut down by the administration. Zuckerberg was pulled into the office, so to speak. He faced expulsion and was charged by the administration with breach of security, violating copyrights, and violating individual privacy. However, the charges were dropped. So, again, very interesting as uh, Zuckerberg takes his first steps into the idea of, you know, gathering people together for a common common goal, common purpose. And it wasn't long thereafter that Mark began to develop what would actually go on to become the actual Facebook website and application. It started off as something called thefacebook.com. So um, previously it had the, the article the before Facebook. So Zuckerberg turned his attention toward this initial creation of Facebook. And when the website first launched in 2004, only Harvard University students could join. So it was kind of like an exclusive club hmm, right. in a way. You know, MySpace was around before this, so the idea of a social network in general wasn't necessarily a, a novel idea. You know, it was already out there to some degree. But this was the first one that was kind of an exclusive club. You know, it could only be joined by students who were attending Harvard. So uh, a few days after the site launched, three other students uh, accused Zuckerberg of misleading them into believing that he would help them build a social network called HarvardConnection.com. And this is famously illustrated in the movie, right? The social that's, network. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, there's a few students who come forward who said, we were working with Mark. He was supposed to be creating this site for us. And then at the last minute, he drops the project, says he can't do it. And then within a few days, the Facebook.com emerges. That's right. Yeah. So very similar idea. Uh, an investigation was launched at Harvard when these allegations were filed by the other students uh, by the Harvard newspaper, which is called the Crimson. And the, the rest of the story gets a little bit more interesting. Zuckerberg knew that this investigation was taking place. So what he did, and he, he went on to the Facebook.com website, and he started searching for members of the Crimson newspaper who had also signed up for the Facebook.com. And he started analyzing their failed password attempts. So you know how sometimes, Jason, you might be trying to sign into a different uh, application or website and you use the wrong password. It was actually the password for your Netflix account or, right. or something else. But it was a password. But it was a use. real password, right? So you know he, he realized this and he went through and he started looking to look see what the failed passwords were, the ones that didn't work. And through doing this, he found two real passwords for these newspaper editors' email accounts. So he went into these email accounts uh, of at least two of these Crimson newspaper reporters, uh, these editors, and you know just started looking through their email to find news and information about the investigation. I mean, that's like some legit secret spy stuff. Oh there. man, yeah, he, he's uh, he's definitely doing some interesting work here. Uh, in the end, three Crimson members ended up filing a lawsuit against Zuckerberg, and it was later settled. So. 
up to this point, we have um, Zuckerberg developing face mash and getting in trouble and having some charges dropped <laughs> against him. And then we have him developing the Facebook.com and having these crimson newsletter people or, or newspaper people file a lawsuit against him for going into their email. That gets settled. So it seems like the, the cards always sort of fall in his favor right. just a little bit. Uh, it wasn't long before Facebook started expanding and exploding and really becoming the the cultural giant that we know today. But it was in it was in slow steps. Uh, it was expanded to allow access by other colleges in the Boston area, the Ivy League schools. So no longer was it restricted just to Harvard. You know, it opened up to Yale and some of these other Ivy League schools. Later, it was expanded again to allow anyone with a valid university email to join. And I think this was around the time that I might have hopped on board with Facebook. I think I was still in college oh, really? at the time. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I remember having to use an email address with .edu at the end. Oh. Yeah, in order to get to get signed up for Facebook. Uh, but by 2006, everyone with a valid email address uh, who was at least 13 years old could join the site. So this is when Facebook sort of flung open the doors and you know they said, come on in. Right. <laughs> Doesn't matter if you're Ivy League or if otherwise. If you have a pulse, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Join us. Yeah, if you're breathing and you know <laughs> At least three other people who would be interested in joining and posting pictures, looking at cat memes and uploading videos, you know, apply within. Going forward a little bit in time, Facebook obviously has grown and grown. It's continued to make more and more money. It's continued to expand into other areas. And as recently as 2018... You know, we have some very big news about Facebook that started to develop. And Jason, you may have heard some of this, uh, the Cambridge Analytica data, data scandal. This was uh, something that came out just last year. And you may have seen some video footage of, of Mark Zuckerberg testifying in front of uh, Congress and, and all of this sort Absolutely. of stuff. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's been very interesting to follow. But in 2018, it was revealed that Cambridge Analytica, which is a British political consulting firm, had extracted the personal data of millions of people's Facebook profiles without their consent and used it for political advertising purposes. Um, immediately when that news came to light, Facebook's stock price fell massively, and it generated much discussion about tech companies' use of personal data. And this goes a long way toward you know thinking about sometimes the destructive nature of technology. You don't know until you know. You don't know what's going to happen whenever you, you share massive amounts of data across the entire world because it's never happened before. So the first time it happens with something like Facebook, of course, there's going to be the potential for the unknown, right? We're, we're going yeah, to see absolutely things happen. because it is the first time. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you know, with technology, you know, uh, more often than not, you are dealing with first times right. on everything. Absolutely. There was no prehistoric Facebook. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> We've not been down this path before. So whenever we find out that all of this data it has been shared and without people's knowledge, all of a sudden, people start to, to you know, kind of look up a little bit, look away from their devices and think, you know, what could this mean for the world that we're sharing all of this data and information and there's just this free flow of it? So the scandal really erupted in March 2018 when an ex-Cambridge Analytica employee named Christopher Wolf came forward with additional information regarding the data leak. And Mark Zuckerberg testified in front of the U.S. Congress to answer questions related to the data scandal. Cambridge Analytica developed 
developed an informed consent process for research. And this is this is kind of what started it all. This this is how the data leak worked. They created an app, essentially. And within the app, it did ask for permission from the people it was sent to. So at least that part is legitimate. You know, that's fine. But the way Facebook was set up at the time is that if you gave your consent, like, for example, Jason, if I sent you an app and said, hey, Jason, fill out this survey, give me all this information. If you agreed to do that, it would also send me back information from every single person in your social network. So however many people you have on Facebook, uh, I would get all of their information. And this would include things like their public profile, what pages they like, their birthday, the city they lived in. And from that, if I were, were savvy enough, I could create targeted ad campaigns to send out to those specific oh, yeah. people. Very easily. Yeah. You know, knowing the, this intimate information about who they are. And that's exactly what happened. And, and that's kind of how it all erupted. Now, I will say when I was first hearing about all this and watching it on the news, I think I had a little bit of a disconnect uh, regarding what was actually going on. You know, for, for some reason in my mind, you know, seeing Mark Zuckerberg sitting there, you know, being interviewed and grilled by Congress, somehow I thought he personally had contributed to, <laughs> to, to like passing out some data, you yeah. know. He'd accidentally people. like left a briefcase somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the almighty briefcase <laughs> of important documents. But no, it was more just negligence in policy making that that's really right. what what he was being interviewed about was just you know what are we going to do about this now that we know this is a thing and that we know people can access this information how are you mark zuckerberg <laughs> going to contribute to to making the world a better place and, and <laughs> I, I specifically remember uh watching you know what you're talking about there yeah. and normally you know, when you are testifying in front of congress it's normally other congress it's other senators, it's other representatives, it's uh, military personnel. Right. It's typically not the Facebook owner, the, <laughs> it's not the, the Facebook, Facebook guy. CEO. Yeah, right. So <laughs> right. I thought you know, that that's when you know that you have created a company that <laughs> that is just enormous and, and, and perhaps is outgrowing itself. Yeah. Is that when you're having to testify <laughs> in front of Congress about what you have done. Right. <laughs> I just thought that was so odd to me when I watched him there. I thought, that's the Facebook guy. What's, that, yeah, yeah. yeah, what's he doing in front yeah. of Congress? You know, some people said he, he's kind of sent a robot in his place, and he wasn't really there. <laughs> I don't know if you – in the interviews, he just kind of has this stone face, and he's staring straight ahead. And even when he smiles – the upper part of his face is kind of paralyzed, like his eyes show no well, emotion. That's, that's, that's what he paid to, uh, to Elon Musk to have that robot right. sent there. I'd say Musk made it. Oh, man. Yeah, very possibly. So coming out of all this was just, um, you know, a large public campaign to make things a little bit safer. You know, I, I started to see a lot of emails coming to me about terms and policies being updated, you know, across yeah. the board from all oh. kinds of places, especially Facebook after this happened. For, for all things that Facebook has, has been a part of in its development, Jason, I, I really can't imagine a world today without a Facebook. You know, when, when I'm thinking about connecting with family and friends and all the things that it allows people to do, I really do think that in a big way, it is meeting the overarching goal of its existence, right? It's connecting people. Yeah, I totally agree with that. 
You know, I was actually thinking about uh, that very topic uh, on the way here, on, on the drive to to record this podcast tonight. Yeah. And I would say, honestly, uh, and I'm, I'm being very honest, maybe not a good thing, uh, but I am being honest that I would say probably about 30 minutes a day yeah. that I spend on Facebook. I mean, you know, three, four, five minutes here and there. Sure. But I would say roughly I probably spend 30 minutes uh, of every day of my life on that. Yeah, I, I would say probably the same, you know, and, and just kind of flicking over to the app. Yeah. And scrolling yeah. through yep. just for one to three minutes, <laughs> five or six times a day, that adds up. And I would even caution to say, Jason, that that's probably the low end. I would say there's people who engage oh, sure. much more frequently yeah. than just 30 minutes a day. So it's it's crazy how much the platform is actually utilized. But, you know, in terms of the, the good that Facebook has done for the world, it's um, recently announced a number of tools and initiatives designed to help people build community and keep each other safe. Uh, its initiatives have included blood donation um, initiatives, uh, suicide prevention, a 50 million dollar matching fund in support of communities rebuilding after disasters. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan have vowed to donate 99% of their Facebook shares to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is a foundation they co-founded focusing on science and, and education. So as a first step, they've committed $3 billion over 10 years to cure, prevent, or manage all disease during their children's lifetime. I'd say that's a noble cause, you know, trying to cure disease, manage disease, um, giving up $3 billion. You know? Absolutely. I don't know if I could swing $3 billion, Jason. <laughs> no, I don't think I could either. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the overarching Facebook mission has been to connect the world. That has been what they've adapted their vision to be. It's been what they They've carried out and executed over the years that they've existed. And the final thing I'll mention here is that they're currently working on a tool called Internet.org. And it's a tool that Facebook is creating to get everybody in the world online. That's really what Mark Zuckerberg wants to be his contribution to humanity. And they did a big study about this to see what it would take. And they found that 85% of the world is close enough to a cell phone tower to receive the Internet but many people cannot afford to take advantage of that because they can't afford data packages. They can't afford cell phone plans. In some instances, they, they can't even afford cell phones, of course. you know. So there's a barrier there uh, to get them online. So Facebook is working to solve this by releasing the app Internet.org, which is going to be released worldwide that allows access to the Internet. And to do this, they're collaborating with data carriers in these remote regions of the world and asking them to release the app for free to anyone who would have a phone capable of accessing the Internet. So obviously you would have to have the phone, but you wouldn't have to purchase a data package. You wouldn't actually have to have cell phone service. They're just wanting to use your or service basically to distribute a free version. It's a free Wi-Fi of the type internet. thing. Yeah, yeah sort yeah. of. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, some people have called this Internet Nine One One. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, you know, if you're in if you're in trouble, you 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 dial nine one one. And Zuckerberg has compared not having the internet to you know sort of being in a similar state of peril. You know, not being able to contact and reach people and communicate in this social world that he's hoping to create. So, Jason, any final thoughts on Facebook before we transition over to our next topic of conversation? 
I mean, no, not not really any additional thoughts. It's just uh, you know, the more I reflect on it. Uh, I mean, I use Facebook quite a bit. A lot of my family, you know, a lot of my family does. A lot of friends. Yeah. I don't really see it going away anytime soon. I think I've been on there now for uh, probably five years. I mean, I've been on sure. there a little less than than most people, you know. Yeah. But uh, I really like it. it. It's a really good tool, uh, and it's just really it's really going to be interesting to see how that company progresses and some of the things that they decide to do. Maybe some of the new implementations, you know, that they decide to uh, venture out toward over the next few years. Yeah, I, I look forward to seeing that progress and seeing what happens. So with that, I think we're going to transition over to our second company of discussion, and that is Disney. So, Jason, what can you tell us about Disney Corporation? Well, Shannon, I can tell you that children love Disney. <laughs> Do they? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is all for the dot. <laughs> Now, Disney is one of the most uh, feel-good, trustworthy, historical companies uh, in American history. Honestly, it's a company unlike any other in regard to its connection to children and families. But like we discussed in our Nike McDonald's episode that we had mentioned you know, uh, earlier in this episode, yeah. Disney, too, had humble beginnings. On October 16, 1923, Walt and Roy Disney founded Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio in Los Angeles, California. A few months earlier, Walt had created a short film called Alice's Wonderland, which featured a little girl interacting with animal characters. Walt and his brother used the money from this short film to help pay for the building in Los Angeles. Okay. In January of 1926, so we fast forward three years, the uh, Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio changed its name to Walt Disney Studio. A few months later, they developed an all-cartoon series featuring a character named Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And Shannon, if you get a chance to Google uh, Oswald, you might notice that he looks uh, very similar to a another character. Uh, I'll give you a hint. His first name is Mickey. <laughs> oh, Mickey the Famous Mouse. That's huh? There you go. That's right. Now, Disney didn't actually own the rights to Oswald uh, the Lucky Rabbit. Universal Studios did. And in 1928, they broke ties with Disney. But Disney really liked uh, that character. And, of course, they missed out on the income from it. So it wasn't long before they created their own character named Mortimer Mouse. Oh, so have you ever not heard of Mortimer Mickey. Mouse? Not, not. not Mickey yet. No, is he is he looking like Mickey at he, this point? He's looking more like Mickey. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Mortimer uh, was actually short-lived, really. Uh, he was soon renamed and re-imaged as the beloved Mickey Mouse uh, right. that we know today. And on November 18, 1928, this was a, a big uh, day for Disney, they released a cartoon titled Steamboat Willie sure, yeah. fe uh, featuring Mickey Mouse. Uh, not only was Mickey being introduced to the world, but Steamboat Willie was the first cartoon to use synchronized sound. So mm. this release was a huge step up in Disney's popularity. The success led to another restructuring of the company. And on December 16, 1929, Walt Disney Productions was formed. Under the new organization, Walt owned 60% of the company, while his brother Roy owned 40% of, of the company. Yeah. In 1932, Disney signed a contract with Technicolor, and we've talked about this in, a, in an earlier episode, you know, with the history of movies. Oh, yeah. But they signed a contract with Technicolor to begin producing cartoons in color, the first being a short uh, titled Flowers and Trees. 
More cartoons would follow, but in 1937, Disney released Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which was Disney's first feature-length color and sound cartoon. And this made Disney a great deal of money, so much so that Disney was able to build a 51-acre studio complex in Burbank, California, that was named Walt Disney Studios. Wow, that's incredible. And Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs still is a big staple for them today. I mean, you walk into any of the Disney stores or you look at any of the merchandising, Snow White. She's a princess. She's a big deal. She's one of the The princesses. The original. That's right. This this new infrastructure uh, gave Disney the ability to create cartoons and featured films at a quicker pace, highlighted by Pinocchio and Fantasia in 1940, Dumbo in 1941, and our good friend Bambi in 1942. (laughs) Good old Bambi. That's right. Of course, by 1942, America was deeply involved in World War II, uh, and as one would expect, box office profits declined. In fact, several of Disney's key writers and support staff were actually drafted uh, into the war. Oh, wow. Yeah, I had never heard that. Those no. are highly specialized, hard-to-replace folks, I imagine. And they're on the battlefront. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Absolutely. During the war from about 1942 to 1945, the Disney Company looked very different. The U.S. and Canadian governments commissioned Disney to produce training and propaganda films. By 1942, the vast majority of Disney employees were working working on war-related films, including the 1943 release of, and I kid you not, the name, Education for Death. <laughs> what? So I'm going to... Wait, say it isn't so. <laughs> no, it is so. It is so. I'm going to back up here just for a few moments. And so I'm going to read off some, some movies. We have Flowers and Trees. Okay. We have Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> Right. We have Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, uh-huh. Bambi. Right. And education for death. <laughs> Which one of those is not like the others? Oh man, that's uh, that's crazy. So what what is what's this about? What, what is education for death? <laughs> I thought Bambi was kind of education thought, <laughs> with with the mother scene and all that. He would be like like education for death, <laughs> colon Bambi two or whatever. Uh, education for death was actually a, a ten minute cartoon, believe it or not, uh, featuring uh, a young boy. Uh, that they that he he grows up in Hitler's Germany and it was trying to warn Americans about the brainwashing that was going on of the youth in Germany and during the ten minutes it shows him you know being taught these horrible things and then he ends up going off into war wow. going into World War Two uh, and so that was produced by by Disney so not the lighthearted sequel to Frozen that absolutely we, my family no. just watched here recently that's no <laughs> not on this one. Uh, and even Donald Duck made an appearance uh, in a cartoon called The Fuhrer's Face. Now, I've heard of this. Yeah, so, so, I have heard of that one as well. Yeah, that's that's wild. While the 1940s were difficult for Disney, uh, as the entire world, the 1950s saw the company grow into the juggernaut we know today. In 1950, they, they released Cinderella. In 1951, they released Alice in Wonderland. And then Peter Pan in 1953. In 1954, they launched the first regular television series called An Hour in Wonderland on the ABC network. So that was their first appearance on on TV. Gotcha. From 1950 to 1954, Disney's profits soared, which culminated on July 
July 18th, 1955, with the opening of a little place called Disneyland. What a wonderful place. That's that's what I've heard. <laughs> uh, and just a few months later, also in 55, the television program The Mickey Mouse Club debuted. And there, there's been a lot of famous people go through that, I think. I, I don't know the timeline exactly, probably much later than 55, but... I think some of the the pop stars that were around in the 2000s. Probably in the 90s and and 2000s, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the 50s, you know, the the Disney company just really just arrived on the scene. I mean, they have their own theme park. They now have a regular television show. Right. They have all these very successful movies, and business is a booming. That's incredible. Now, did they have a podcast? They did not have a (laughs) podcast. So we are one-up them on that one. I feel good about that. (laughs) Elon Musk and uh, (laughs) Mark Zuckerberg, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. You have a theme park, but, but do you speak? into a microphone. (laughs) Years later, in 1965, Walt Disney announced plans to create Disney World uh, in Orlando, Florida. Unfortunately, Walt Disney passed away on December 15th, 1966, due to lung cancer, and he never saw the opening of the new theme park, which took place in 1971. However, uh, his brother Roy renamed Disney World Walt Disney World. Hmm. And sadly, Walt's brother Roy died three months after the opening of the new theme park. Wow. So he, he never actually got to see the flagship, the, the Disney World. No, he died. He died several years before that actually before it actually opened. Wow. There, there's, <clears throat> a, there's an interesting statue there that you can Google and see a picture of. It's just um, Walt Disney holding hands with Mickey Mouse and sort of holding his arm up, showing him. Disney World and everything, and it's just kind of a very touching statue, and it really paints a picture of how big of an influence both Walt Disney and Mickey Mouse, by association, had on the world. But I had no idea he actually didn't get to go there. Yeah, and you know, after he renamed the after his brother Roy renamed the park. Uh, from Disney World to Walt Disney World, uh, he actually saw that for three months before he himself passed away. Man, that's tragic. So, yeah. And uh, uh, one of my good friends, Will, uh, we were talking about this episode, and we were talking about Walt Disney, and, and he brought up an interesting note that you can uh, search, you know, you can Google it. The last words that Walt Disney spoke uh, before he passed away, a lot of people have reported that the, that the last two words that he spoke were Kurt Russell. And that sounds <laughs> what? That sounds really strange, but it makes perfect sense when you when you think about it. Does it? <laughs> it does. Give me one second. I know. Because when my when my friend told me that, I was like, uh, I was like, what? But no, Kurt Russell uh, were the last two words that he spoke uh, before he passed away. But they had they had just been in a meeting regarding Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell was a was a child during this time period, oh. and they had sort of uh, dubbed him as going to be a like a a Disney prince type thing, where he was going to be featured in a lot of movies. They were just really big on just his personality and his acting ability. Wow! And I think he's actually in one or two. Uh, earlier Disney movies, maybe Old Yeller. Okay. I think maybe. And so anyway, they had big plans for Kurt Russell to be like a, a permanent fixture in Disney movies moving forward, like in the late 60s and into the 70s. Gotcha. Uh, and so they had recently uh, met uh, with uh, or at least about Kurt Russell. And so they think maybe that was just on his mind or oh, something. Wow. But Yeah, I thought this was going to be one of those uh, rosebud it was kind a, of yeah, moments. Yeah, you know, not, like not, Citizen Kane, you have no <laughs> idea yeah. what they're talking it's about. Not Mickey Mouse or, or not Donald 
Duck, but but Kurt Russell. All right. So. Uh, Disney, the company, continued to grow, and in April of 1983, they launched the Disney Channel, which is still going strong. The Disney Channel, probably it's probably the SEC Network, mm-hmm. the Disney Channel, <laughs> and ESPN are the three channels that play pretty much all the time at my at house. Your house. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this really brings us to the modern era of, of Disney, but the company continues to grow. In fact, the company now operates 12 amusement parks and resorts worldwide, located, of course, in the United States, in California and Florida, uh, but also in locations around the world, such as Tokyo, Paris, Hong Kong, and Shanghai. Oh. And recently, Disney has purchased the rights uh, to uh, Marvel Studios. Yeah. Obviously, the Star Wars franchise. Uh, and as a result, Shannon, mm-hmm. as a result, Disney has either made or now owns the rights to 13 of the top 25 highest grossing movies of all time. That's insane. Because they, they have all the Marvel. They have the Star Wars. They have, I think it's Incredibles 2, uh, Frozen. So yeah. they have those on, on, on their own rights. So thirteen, more than half of the top 25 highest grossing movies of all time, they either, they either made them or they now <laughs> own the rights to them. You know what they need to do? They need to create a streaming service of some sort and maybe... <laughs> Maybe call it Disney Plus. <laughs> Man, that would be a really good idea. We need to pitch that to them. I think they would like that quite a bit. <laughs> Maybe but, we could get some commission off that yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, and finally, uh, obviously, we're going to talk about money, right? I mean, talking about Disney, we have clothing stores and TV shows and, and theme parks. So they made a little bit. They have made a little bit of money. According to uh, a 2018 Wall Street Journal article, Disney's revenue in 2018 was $55 billion, and their actual profits were $9 billion. For the year. For the year. So they, they actually made $9 billion for the entire company. That's theme parks. That's that's everything. That their actual profit was $9 billion in, in a single year. So how much is that of that's going into the next five Toy Story sequels? <laughs> I don't know, but I, I really hope that uh, Woody comes back and, and, and we get Buzz and we just get the whole group back. Yeah, know? we got to bring them back. That's right. So with that $9 billion, that outrageous number, I'm going to close the chapter on Disney. So, Shannon, anything else that you would like uh, to add? You know, I'll just mention Disney's been a big part of my childhood growing up. You know, I've seen... I, I would wager to say the vast majority of Disney's animated film collection, uh, obviously the Pixar stuff. Uh, just today, my family and I went and watched the sequel to Frozen. And just as, you know, it, it's so recognizable, it's so ubiquitous. Disney is everywhere, you know, as much so or even more so than Facebook. I think it just connects with oh, people yes. on, you know, such a such an individual level. And, you know, my, my daughter, who is three years old, can't yet read she can she can read a few sight words but she can point out disney i mean she just sees the logo and she says oh disney you know yeah. and she just knows and that. she knows that's good and that's for kids and that's going to be fun and yeah. yeah she just associates that with that symbol yeah so the amount of money they've made is no surprise to the deaton household <laughs> i'll right. just say that you know my daughters uh kennedy and maylee uh i don't know when the first frozen came out has it been about four years ago maybe or man i want to say it's it's more than that um 
I'm not sure of the specifics. We'd have to check so on that. Four or five it's, it's years ago. Yeah, a little while. So uh, I actually have a YouTube video where I recorded uh, my, my two daughters, and they, they reenact that scene where Kennedy's actually in her room, the door closed, and Maylee's like knocking oh, on yeah. the door. And she's like, Anna, I want to play. <laughs> you know, and then she starts singing, do you want to build a oh, snowman? Man, that's cute. That, and that's actually on YouTube right now. I recorded it and put it up there. That's awesome. So like I, like I said, that's that's been four or five years uh, <laughs> ago. So Disney yeah, Plus material. That, that's right exactly right. I mean, honestly, Shannon, I don't really know uh, any any child, uh, any parent, uh, and probably any grandparent that ha- that is not connected or has uh, a high level of working knowledge about Disney yeah. at this point. I mean, honestly, yeah. I mean that's just you know. I mean, my mother, I, I remember her talking about Disney. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, when she, when she was young and growing up, and of course Disney's been around my life, your life, our kids' lives. Uh, it's there's never been a world where there has not been Disney. Right, and and now they're more than just princesses. It's Star Wars and it's Marvel and, you know, all of these big, big brands. You said 13 out of 25 of the highest grossing movies. That's just crazy. I mean, going into the future, it's very bright for Disney. That's right. And and I love the Disney princesses, but give me Yoda. (laughs) I will take my Yoda. So, Shannon, anything else you'd like to add about the uh, podcast in general as we come to a close tonight? Yeah, I'll just uh, thank everyone who has been listening and following us on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the handle at SlapdashPod. And, Jason, I think we just got over 500 likes on our Facebook page, which uh, we're really excited about. Hey, Facebook's pretty good, right? Yeah, apparently so. <laughs> there's there's some good things about Thanks, Mark Facebook. Zuckerberg, for that. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, uh, we'd like to uh, ask everyone to join us next time as we will interview New York Times bestselling author Will Lavender and discuss some of our favorite novels. So until next time, take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.